For more information about First Baptist Church, visit our website at fbclawschool.org. Thank you so much. Boy, y'all sound good. Y'all sound good this morning. Glad y'all are here with us. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis. Genesis chapter 28. We are in week two of our family discussion about revival. Right on the heels of our spending a lot of time talking about what it means to be an irresistible church. A church that heaven can't help but bless. We're going to talk about how we do our part, and that is, that is by making sure that our hearts and our lives are prepared for revival. Because until we have revival, individually and as a people, until we have a revival, the revival in the church is not going to take place. It has to start here and grow out from us. And so we're going to talk about that, and, and one of the things that we need to do we talked last week about being desperate, desperate for God. And we asked the question, are we desperate for God? Are we desperate for what Jesus Christ has promised to do in our lives? Are, are we desperate for the change and the revival and the growth and the, the transformation that, that, that Christ promises those who, who live in Him are going to experience? Are we desperate for that? And another way that we're going to prepare ourselves for it this revival that I just believe is going to happen. I believe that God hasn't done what has taken place around us for no reason. I believe that He has given us so many opportunities to open our eyes and see the work that's before us. As Christians, as the church, as people, He has given us the opportunity to reset so many relationships. He's given us the opportunity to, to do so many things in different ways. He has stretched us beyond our ability, we, we thought, until we were actually doing it through the power of the Holy Spirit, not anything we did. Lord, I think one of the most important things we're going to do is make sure that we are ready to hear God when He speaks. And that's going to be uh, important. That It's going to be important that we uh, pack up the junk in our lives. I don't know about y'all, but my garage looks horrible. And it looked horrible before we moved, and it has not improved since then. And I was beginning to think to myself, and I've told Elgin so many times, look, we have got boxes we haven't opened in two moves. Why are we still keeping this stuff? But we just have a problem getting rid of things. And I think that happens a lot in our spiritual life, too. We collect junk. And these, this junk are, are things where we might, have, we might have failed. We felt like we have failed God. We felt like that we have not lived the way we should live. And instead of accepting God's forgiveness when we confess this, instead of accepting God's uh, his, his, his forgiveness and His permission to move on with our lives, we keep it. And we tuck it in. And we use it as an excuse not to do things. We use it as an excuse not to listen. We use it as an excuse not to serve or to act. But if we're going to experience true revival, we're going to have to understand that we've got to get this junk out. We've got to take it to the road and let him pick it up. We have got to do those things because revival is seeing God in a new way. And we can't see God in a new way if we're still looking through the old dirty lenses of all the junk in our lives. 
We've got to see Him in a new way. We've got to see ourselves in a new way. We've got to let God in so that He can renew our strength. He can renew our focus on the things that are important so that we can look at the problems around our community. We can look at the opportunities that we have to love and to serve and to minister and to reach with new eyes and with new arms and with new legs and with a refreshed spirit. That's part of what revival brings with us is that this feeling of, of newness, this feeling of, of just a, we can, we can accomplish so many things that we never thought we could do before because the Spirit is, is enabling us to see these opportunities in a whole new way. Revival is stoking the fire that's in our lives for God, letting Him take us where we never knew we could go. I don't know about y'all, but I'm ready to go someplace that I never thought we could go. I'm ready for God to open our eyes to, to, what, to, what the, to the possibilities, the what-ifs in our ministry, the what-ifs in our community, the what-ifs in our relationship with Him. But here comes the frightening part. Almost always when we consider this, that means change of some kind, right? That means change of some kind. We want, it, we want to change, but sometimes it takes time to get the junk out of our lives. Just like it takes time to get the junk out of your garage, just like it, you know, someone told me one time that, that he, didn't, he realized that he needed to clean his garage out because he realized that he had $400 worth of stuff in a garage that was intended to keep his $40,000 car, which is sitting outside. And that's kind of what, you know, and I think about it, there's just so many ways that you can relate that to what's going on here. We keep so many, so much junk in our, in our spiritual lives that we're not, we're not making room for the true important, the true pearl of great price that's in our lives. But the good news is God works with us where we are. God works with us where we are. He, he refines us. He rebukes us. He reveals uh, himself to us as he moves us toward righteousness, as he moves us toward personal revival. God works with us. The things that are in our lives are not a shock to God. He didn't look up one day and said, man, I really thought I could work with Heath, but he's got so much going on. There ain't no way I can do through him. No, he knows each and every one of us where we are. And what he wants to do with the believer, with those who have given their lives to him, those who are willing to be obedient to him. He takes us and he molds us and he sometimes breaks us and he, he grows us and he develops us and he changes us until, until we're doing what he wants us to do the way he wants us to do it. The great news for us is that's not for us to have to, to deal with. God does that for us. That's his promise. We don't have to figure out how to fix ourselves. God fixes us. We just have to be obedient. We just have to be willing to do what he wants us to do. So the question this morning is, what junk needs to be cleaned out of your life? What junk needs to be cleaned out of your life? In Genesis 27 and 28, we find Jacob, who's the patriarch of the nation of Israel, a man through whom God will fulfill his promise to Abraham to make of his line a, a great nation. We find him on the run, just as a side. 
If you want to see a mess, if you want to read about a true mess, I suggest you read Genesis 27 through 35 sometime. Because it's all about the life of Jacob, and it was a mess from start until the moment where he finally realized that God was where he is. He just, his life was just a mess. So if you ever want to read about a mess, I, I commend Genesis 27 through 35 to you. But he, we, find J, we find Jacob on the run in Genesis 27 and 28. He's stolen Esau, his older brother, stolen his blessing, stolen his birthright. He's conspired with his mother to take advantage of his father, Isaac's uh, old age and infirmity, to trick him into giving him these things that belong to Esau. He's not a nice guy. If I were going to pick somebody out of biblical history to be, the, to be the father of God's people, I don't know that I would pick Jacob. But thank goodness, thank goodness that's not my call. That's God's call. I think most of us could probably say something like that about ourselves, really, or, you know, I just don't see how in the world God can use me. Well, it's not, sometimes it's not up for us to see. Sometimes it's just for us to be available for God to use when God decides to do in your life and in my life what he purposes to do. But we find Jacob on the run. He's running. His mother sends him to a place called Haran to live with her brother Laban. And while he's on the road, he's laden down with all of this junk in his life, that this junk that has become his life. He meets God in a dream. He meets him in a dream. Let's look at Genesis 28, verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head. And he lay down in that place. He had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Verse 16 continues, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Man, what a great dream. That Jacob had. What a, what a, what a phenomenal life-changing encounter with God this man Jacob just had. And this dream given to him while he was on the run from his brother who was more than likely looking to kill him for what he had done. God made a promise. Look at what he said in verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob woke up from that dream and realized that God was in that place. He thought he was alone. He thought that he was on the run, fearing for his life, going to this place that he had never been to live with these people that he probably didn't really know. 
And what did he do there? Who, where was he in, in the midst of all of this that was going on in his life? He met God. How many of us go through seasons of life where we just think it can't get any worse? Where we think that we're headed in the wrong direction and we don't know how to get the ship turned around and we don't know how to do the things that we know we're supposed to do, but then we take that opportunity and we are listening close. And we meet God. How often does that happen in our lives? Listen, God is patient. If there is one thing that God is so many things, God is love and He is holiness and He is peace and He is justice. But boy, I tell you what, I am so thankful that one of God's great attributes is that He is patient. He is patient. He will pursue us because He longs to catch us. He longs for us to be with Him. He longs for us to make the decision to accept Him. He longs for us to have a relationship with Him. And so because of that, He continues to give us opportunity after opportunity and chance after chance to do that. He longs to catch us and to wrestle us to the ground and to bring blessing to us. He, he wants that for us. But here's the catch. If there is no willingness to yield... If there is no willingness to yield, there will never be a willingness for God to rule. If we are not willing to yield to God's control over our life, then there will never be a willingness for God to rule in our lives. We've got to be willing. We have got to want it. We've got to be desperate for God's rule in our lives. God saw something in Jacob that we wouldn't see with a casual glance. I mean, he had to be. Because at first glance, Jacob is not a nice guy. Doesn't have a lot going for him. We wouldn't say that he had high moral character. But God was able to see something in Jacob that the rest of us wouldn't see. Here was a man that we would have, have given up on a long time ago. But God didn't give up on Jacob. Why was that? Why would God not give up on Jacob? He wanted Jacob to surrender so that he could become something by the power of God. You see, Jacob had spent his whole life trying to rule his life, trying to run his life on his terms. And God wanted to get Jacob to the point where Jacob would surrender so that God could do something in his life that only God could do. And he wants that for us. He wants us to stop trying to live our lives on our terms. He wants us to stop trying to live the life that we want to live and surrender to Him so that He can do something in my life and in your life that only God can do. Isn't that, isn't that just exciting that God has got something to do in your life that only He can do? We can't, we can't do it. He want, wanted Jacob to be something that he could never be on his own. So, over in Genesis 32, Jacob comes to a defining moment in his life. Jacob's on the run again. And we covered this, this part of Genesis 32 last week. His past and, and all of his sin had caught up with him. He had decided that he was, had worn out his welcome with his uncle. And he wanted to return home along with his wives and his whole household. He was ready to pack up and leave Haran where Laban was because... Oddly enough, Laban was out to kill him now. If you remember, Laban, who has followed the family line, had used deceit and used trickery to, to get Jacob to marry both of his daughters. 
But God was with Jacob, and even though his, his uncle and father-in-law, it's the same person, gave him the junk of his flocks and herds. You see, Laban's kids talked Laban into giving Jacob just the, the worst of the worst of his, of his cattle, of his herds, of whatever it was that he was, that he was uh, breeding and raising there. He gave him the worst. The runts of the litter. Jacob, though, if you look at Genesis 30 and 31, had turned that into great personal wealth. He had taken this bad stuff that Laban had just dumped on him and through hard work and through God's mercy and grace in his life, he had grown this into a great deal of personal wealth. So his cousins and his brothers-in-law had convinced Laban that Jacob had tricked him. And because of that, that he needed to be eliminated. He needed to go. Laban needed to kill Jacob because Jacob had tricked him because how else could he possibly have taken the dregs of everything that he had and turned it in to something spectacular from the world's perspective, turned it into great, great wealth. Well, Laban agreed with that. He kind of felt like he had been taken advantage of even though he was the one trying to take advantage of Jacob. Anyway, so Jacob was on the run again. Running for his life again. He was running away from his uncle who wanted to kill him. He was running toward his brother who may or may not still want to kill him by this point. We don't really know. Well, in chapter 31 of Genesis, the Bible tells us that Laban caught up with him. And Laban, through some type of, of understanding, some type of revelation, knew that God was with Jacob. And that Jacob had dealt fairly with him. So after he found him, he discovered, he determined that Jacob hadn't really tried to rip him off at all. That Jacob had just done good work with what he was given. And God had blessed that. And that God was with him. And because of that, his father-in-law Laban, who set out to kill him, made peace with him and returned to his home. So Jacob had kind of escaped a little bit on that one. He no longer had his father-in-law trying to kill him. But he still had his brother in front of him. And he was afraid. He was afraid. And while he was waiting for that, that fateful confrontation that he was going to have with his older brother, from whom he had stolen everything of importance in the ancient world, everything of importance, his birthright and his father's blessing, those were the two most important things that the oldest son could receive in this world. And Jacob had stolen them from his brother. And his brother was rightly perturbed about it. To use just simple language. He was, he was mad. He still had that. So Jacob, on his way home to face his brother, encounters God again. And we see in chapter 32, beginning in verse 24, that Jacob has this wrestling match with God. Right? He wrestled all night. And at the end of that, he left with a limp and a new name. But he also left having had an experience with God. It is clear that God had plans for Jacob. He told him that in that dream. And then years and years later, he had this experience with him. You see, at this point, Jacob has the defining moment in his life. The defining moment. 
through his wrestling match, the, the great deceiver now realized the strength that he could have through God. Through living his life in God. In obedience to him. In truth to him. In passion for him. The strength that could be his. Where he once tried to prevail in his own strength, Jacob now has found God's power to prevail in a whole new way. He looked at life differently after that encounter. He was knocked down, you see, so that one day he could stand up in victory. The great thing about God's Word is that it is totally relevant. It doesn't matter when it was written. It doesn't matter where we are, what time we're in right now, what's going on in the world around us. God's Word is relevant to us today, right? And you have to really look no further than, than, than an encounter like this. How many of us need to be knocked down so God can pick us up and point us in the right direction? Sometimes we're bad listeners. I'm accused of that a lot. But I don't think I'm alone in that. I think sometimes we're just bad listeners. And that God wants to get our attention. And that the way sometimes God has to use to get our attention is that He has to knock us down. Or he has to allow us to be knocked down. He has to not prevent us from being knocked down. When we're heading on our path, when we're doing our thing, when we're making our waves, and God wants us to, to take this direction because this is the direction that he has for us, the one that he's got laid out for us, the plan that he's got for our lives, sometimes the only way to do that is to kind of hit us and move us in this direction. And that's kind of where he was with Jacob. And Jacob had that defining moment in his life. You see, Jacob had reached his point of desperation. Remember, he said, I'm not going to finish fighting. I'm not going to stop this fight. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He had, been, he had reached the point where he was desperate for God. And he had found God ready and willing and able to take him where he was and to make him what God knew that Jacob could always be. He was ready to hear. He was ready to listen. He was ready to be obedient. He was ready to move when God said, move. So he had had that on his way. And then we look in chapter 33, we see his, that his reunion with Esau could not have gone any better. Right? The Bible tells us in Genesis 33, 4, that Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. This man, this man that had been robbed of everything that was rightfully his in this world, his heart had been softened. He was ready to meet his brother again. He was ready to be reunited with his brother. He was ready to move on. And Jacob had reached the point in his life where God had finally found him ready to be dealt with. God had finally gotten him to the point where he was ready to listen and he was ready to be who God had created him to be. And that reunion, that reunion was beautiful because God had ordained the circumstances. 
Esau even tried to give Jacob back all the presents that Jacob had sent ahead of himself to kind of grease the skids. If you if you'll look back before this meeting, I mean Jacob had laid it on thick. He had sent all kind of wealth. He had sent all kind of, of animals. He had sent all kind of, of uh, produce. He had sent jewels. He had sent all kind of stuff. Gold. Everything ahead of him in an attempt to buy his brother's favor. Once again, Jacob was trying to handle it himself. But that's not the plan that God had. And the Bible wants us to know that it wasn't because of everything that Jacob tried to do that bought off Esau's favor. Because he, the Bible tells us Esau tried to give it back. Jacob, even though he was loaded down with the junk of sin in his life and had made what seemed to be all of the wrong decisions, in keeping with the promise God made him when he had that dream, was home. He was home. Sometimes God just wants to bring us home. And we'll fight him every step of the way. Sometimes God just wants to, for us to, to be where we're, where we're safe and we're loved by others and by him. And we'll resist that. And sometimes God has to get us to the point where we're going to listen where, where he, to where he tells us to go. God promised him he would let him come home. And God was good to his word. And that's an instance among countless other instances in the word of God where God has been good to his word. Regardless of whether we kept our word to him, God has always kept his word to us. This was just one of those times. So in Genesis 35, we find Jacob again at Bethel. Again at Bethel. The scene of his big dream where God had renewed his promise to Jacob by changing his name to Israel. Look at Genesis 35, verse 10. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac... I will give to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. God fulfilled his promise. God kept his promise. Jacob lived out a, a blessed life, but it wasn't without struggle. Sometimes we think that God's not blessing us when we, when we go through periods of time where we struggle. But I think if you look at those people that are in the Bible, those people that Scripture gives us or holds up to us as people that have walked with God and, been, and found favor with God and God has worked through and used in so many ways, these were fragile, broken people that did not, that did not go through their lives unscathed. Jacob did live out a, a blessed life, but it was a life that was full of struggle. In A.W. Tozer's little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and those of you who know me know I love me some A.W. Tozer. I love the way he writes. I love the way the fact that he wrote this in like the 1950s and it is still just as relevant today, including what's going on in our culture. It's still just as relevant today if you'll read some of A.W. Tozer's writings. I like the way that he doesn't, he doesn't mince words. 
If you don't want your toes stomped on, don't read A.W. Tozer. I like the way that, that the story goes that he wrote these books by going into his office and by getting on his knees, and he wrote his books on his knees. I just love some Tozer. And this is what he said in the, in the introduction, the preface to his, his little book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. The only way to recoup our spiritual losses is to go back to the cause of them and make such corrections as the truth warrants. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. This was written 60 years ago. Does it sound relevant today? The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. Why did Jacob fall prey to deceit? He didn't have a proper view of God. He didn't have a proper knowledge of the holy. He wanted God's will his way. And it never, ever works like that. We're not going to have God's will our way. We're going to have God's will God's way. And our, our mission as we grow as Christians is to conform our will to God's. Not to conform God's will to ours. We're to conform ourselves to him. And we're so busy with our, with our schemes and our dreams and our plans that we make little time for intimacy and for holiness and, and, and even desperation for God. We just don't have time for desperation. And sometimes God orchestrates events where he can get us alone and wrestle our stubborn will to the ground. Jacob like so many of us, knew the promise of the blessing. Knew it, but he couldn't see how God was going to do it. I mean, we'll sit up in church and in Sunday school and in our Bible study times, or, and, and we'll, we'll gather together and we'll talk about God's will, and we'll talk about the fact that we know God keeps his promises, and, and God has promised to deliver his people, and, and God has promised to do these things, but we just don't know how God is going to do it. And so we become impatient with God's timetable. You see, Jacob was impatient with God's timetable. He must have been in some way convinced that God's promise was conditional based on something that he could do rather than everything that God could do unconditionally based on God's wisdom and grace and love. Everything God does for us, every way He has blessed us as a people, every way He has blessed us as a church, every way He has blessed us as a nation has been unconditional based on the wisdom and the grace and the love of Almighty God. Not by anything we have done. God shed His grace on thee. But Jacob didn't get it. And sometimes neither do we, really, right? Sometimes we don't get it either. The only way he could see things working was if he got involved in the process and got kind of proactive about it. And I know I'm guilty of this too. And I'll give something to God and then I'll say, you know what? I'll, and then when it doesn't happen the way I want it to or in, in, during the time frame I think it ought to, I'll say, you know what? Tell you what, let me just take that back. Let me just take that back and I'll deal with that a little bit. And, and, and because you've got other things going on, Lord have mercy, Lord, you have got so much going on in our world, in this country. You've got so much going on down the street. 
I'll just take this back and I'll, I'll work on it. So, and Jacob was the same way. So he stole his birthright. He lied. He manipulated until, until, faced with the prospect of losing it all, he met God. Don't think that we all embrace the idea of knowing God. Because sometimes to know God means we've got to give ourselves up. In fact, I will tell you that almost all the time, to know God better, we have to give up ourselves first. Jacob didn't. He was willing to send everything he had ahead of him to appease his angry brother. He was trying to test the waters. He didn't really care what happened to everybody else. He just wanted to save himself. For the longest time, Jacob just didn't get it. For the longest time, he just didn't get it. He thought he could control his family and his life and his future. One writer said, striving and resisting had become a survival tactic. Striving and resisting had become his survival tactic. Paul in Philippians reminds us that God is faithful to finish the work he has started in us. God starts the work. God will finish the work. God doesn't need us to step in and try to finish for him. He can do it. God confronted Jacob and, and his patterns of, of deception and deceit, but he wouldn't leave Jacob where he found him. You see, salvation must result in sanctification. And that sanctification is the process by which every day we live and we get up and attempt to grow closer and closer to God. It's growing in Christ's likeness that we talk about. That's where we embark and continue for the rest of our lives on a path of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity where we become in our thoughts and actions more like Christ. That's the process of sanctification. So salvation has to result in sanctification. The experience that we have with God, when we give our everything to God, when we're saved, it necessarily must result in this process of growth. Which is why this is important. I want you all to hear this carefully. This is important. Evangelism is not enough. Simply evangelizing people, getting them to make a decision for God, is not enough. We have got to move from evangelism, which is the beginning, to discipleship. That's the growing. That's the growing in Christ's likeness. That's the becoming more and more like Christ. That is the process of sanctification, is discipleship. We can be a people in a church and, and, a, and, a, a, and in a church universal, you know, not just First Baptist, but the church universal, that is great at evangelism. We can bring people to the point where they will rush down this aisle, they will fall on their face at the altar, and they will give their hearts and their lives and their souls to Jesus Christ, and then we can leave them there. We can't be the people who leave people at the altar. Because the growth the change, the development, the transformation, the sanctification that, the, that we are going through takes place 
on all the days after that until the point where we meet the Lord face to face. And we're glorified. See, we have to move to discipleship. That's why the focus of our First Baptist Church is going to be on those three things. Knowing Jesus. Being like Jesus. Growing to be like Jesus so that we can live for Jesus. That is the process of discipleship. Evangelism begins it, but discipleship has to pick up the load. And that's where we need to be as a people. Why? Because that's the growth we talk about. That's where the church stumbles but must shine. We have to shine in leading people to Christ and then leading Christians to their eternity. We've got to do that. That's just part and parcel of what the church ought to be about. If we're ready to be used by God, if we're ready to see life in a new light, if we're ready to walk in a new dimension of our faith, we must yield, we must repent, and we must surrender. And we'll never experience revival or growth or anything else unless we've done those things, unless we've yielded to God. Unless we've yielded our will to His, our lives to Him. Unless we've done that, unless we have repented of the sin in our life. The sin that has, that has put up a wall between us and Him, or has put up a, a screen or a veil, however you want to look at it, between, between us and Him, where we cannot, we cannot properly experience God because of the sin in our life until we have confessed that to Him, until we have left that on the altar for God to eradicate the way He promises He will. And until we have surrendered to Him. We're never going to experience revival or growth. We're never going to have that sanctification process because that growing, all that growing that we're doing through discipleship is done because we're obedient. And unless we do these three things, we're not going to be obedient. So we've got to yield, repent, and surrender. Only then, only then can we find revival that will move us from wherever we are in our relationship with God to a newer and a higher plane, a place where we can shake off our complacency, a place where we can run the race with a renewed strength and a renewed determination. See, when God takes us to our own point of desperation, when He takes us to that point where we are desperate, where there is only us and God and we know it, that's not the end. That's the beginning. See, that wasn't the end for Jacob. That was just the beginning. God allowed Jacob to reset his life from that point. And he's giving us the same opportunities, whether it's, it's us individually or us collectively or us as the church or us as, as the church. He's giving us an opportunity to see him, to hear him, to follow Him. And, and, and for some, some people, maybe some people here, maybe some people listening, maybe that first step is giving your life to Christ. 
Because none of this is going to make sense. None of this is going to be successful. None of this is going to work out the way you want it to work out unless and until you've given your life to God. Unless you have surrendered yourself to Him, you've yielded yourself to Him, you have confessed your sin, then, then God will do what He promises He will do. But maybe your first step is taking that change in your life. Giving your life to Christ. Let today be that day. Don't, don't wait. Don't wait. God has got a life waiting for you that you cannot possibly comprehend. Does it mean it's going to be great and easy? Not all the time. But the promise is you will never endure life's problems alone ever again. You will never fight them in your strength. You will never, you will never deal with them without the presence of, of the Holy Spirit in your life to lead you and guide you. Let me tell you something. God is victorious. God is one. Doesn't mean the skirmishes won't be painful sometime. But the victory is already His. And that's what He wants for your life. He wants you to live a victorious life. A life that knows Him. A life that is, is confident in Him. A life that is totally changed because of Him. That's where He wants you to be today. Will you make that step? Father, I just... I just thank you for loving us. God, I thank you for the way that your word is, is, is fresh and it's new. Every time we look at it, God, these stories that are thousands of years old, these, these people that are, have long since gone on to have an eternity with you, Lord, what, the, what happened in their lives are making sense to us today. Why is that? It's because you have got a plan for us. That plan has never changed. Times come and go. Cultures come and go. Nations come and go. Your plan is never changes. Your love for us never changes. Your passion for us never wanes. You call us every day, every moment. You call us to live for You, to love like You, to become like Jesus so that we can serve in the manner that He set out for us as an example. God, the things that you've called us to do, we cannot do on our own. And you know that. That's why you've given us the Holy Spirit. That's why you've given us your word. That's why you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. You've promised to walk with us every step of the way. Why? Because you know that we're that left to our own devices. We're not going to make it. Father, thank you for that. Lord, we give our lives to you. We give our church to you. We give our community to you. Father, use us as you would see us, as you would see fit to use us to accomplish your purposes. Not our agenda. We just want to be where you want us to be, doing what you want us to do, Father. We're not concerned when you come back. We're not concerned about counting the days or the moments. You tell us it won't make any difference because we won't know. We just need to be found faithful. God, help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for our invitation.